Robert Jensen, a.k.a. Bob, is Emeritus Professor in the School of Journalism at the University of Texas at Austin. He's also the author of numerous books, including An Inconvenient Apocalypse, Environmental Collapse, Climate Crisis, and the Fate of Humanity, The Heart of Whiteness, Confronting Race, Racism, and White Privilege, and The End of Patriarchy, Radical Feminism for Men. As you may have gleaned from his book titles, Bob is humanitarian to his core, a man who cares about the plight of the less fortunate, and a man who has spent his entire life in the pursuit of helping our world become a better place. But the reason I wanted to talk with Bob today was due to a recent article he penned for Julie Bindle's Substack called Drag Story Hour and Cultural Appropriation. Specifically, his feminist critique that these story hour events are just another example of patriarchy and objectification of women, which is a purview I'd yet to read regarding the very divided topic in our culture. During our chat, we talked at length about why drag story hour is offensive to many feminists, as well as other topics like trigger warnings and safe spaces on college campuses and how political dogma is harming us all. Hope you learned as much from this conversation as I did. Well, there we are, Bob. Thank you for joining me on True 30 this morning. I really appreciate it. Well, it's a pleasure to be with you, Joey. Thanks. So we met due to an article you published on Julie Bindle's Substack recently, mm -hmm. and the article was called Drag Queen Hour and Cultural Appropriation. And it was a purview on the Drag Queen Story Hour discussion we've had here as a culture mm -hmm. for quite some time. And because we didn't know each other, I hit up Julie as soon as I read your article and I said, hey, can you introduce me to Robert Jensen? Uh, I would love to have him on the show. And she was kind enough to do so. And here we are. So um, I just wanted to let you know that what I thought was most compelling about your article is that here, most of the stuff that I've read thus far is from the left. Being a liberal, mm -hmm. I read you know, the New York Times, the mm -hmm. Washington Post, New Yorker, Atlantic, that kind of thing. And I watch MSNBC. As a reporter, I like to understand the right. So I spend a lot of time on the Daily Wire, Fox News, Breitbart, and the like. And there is very few subjects <laughs> that are more polarized than this specific one. And the left obviously has their purview and the right has theirs. Why don't you talk a little bit, because we'll get into the left and the right's ideologies, mm -hmm. but why don't you talk a little bit about the article and uh, why you wrote it, mm -hmm. and where the perspective came from. Right. Uh, this is perhaps nitpicky, but I always like to distinguish between liberal, progressive, and left. These are the ways I describe the current left side of the fence. I come from the political left, uh, you know, anti-capitalist, anti-imperialist, you know, uh, and, and I'm, the, I'm the kind of caricature that people in Texas told their children to be afraid of when they came to the University of Texas. Uh, but I also have roots in radical feminism, uh, hence my connection to Julie Bindle and, and a shout out to Julie, who yes. is one of my my favorite writers in the world. I've, I've really felt lucky to know her and be able to bring her over to the U.S. to speak. Uh, it's been really lovely. Uh, so often the radical feminist roots of my politics come into conflict with the left part of my politics because the left has a different conception of gender. We can come to details around that. That's been going mm -hmm. on for me for the last 35 years. Uh, so as someone who is solidly on the left and critical of the structures of power in the U.S., I don't make any bones about it. I think we're in deep trouble in this country and in the world. Uh, I do find myself sometimes at odds with my left comrades. And on these questions around um, 
pornography, prostitution, drag story hour, uh, often that tension emerges. So I wrote that article because, as you point out, it was kind of a bifurcated right versus left on these matters. And there's a longstanding feminist, typically called a radical feminist critique of things like drag. I remember first mm -hmm. hearing about it, you know, 35 years ago. Uh, and I'd never thought about it before. But in fact, drag, that is largely men and predominantly gay men dressing as not just as women, but as a kind of caricatured version of women, right, has been critiqued by women in feminism uh, mm -hmm. for perfectly understandable reasons. Uh, it It is a kind of a mocking of the way women are caricatured in the world. Now, I'm not saying that every man who performs drag, you know, hates women and is out to demean women. That's not the point. It's a social question. It's a question of a cultural form that has its that has its roots in male dominance. And so just as as you know, in the article, I point out um, white people now understand that we don't have the right to perform in blackface, which is a cultural form that goes back, you know, many, many years and has always been tied to mocking black people. Mm -hmm. And luckily, at this point in history, most white people realize blackface is completely inappropriate. And so as many other people have done, I simply made the analogy of uh, drag or what you might call woman face to blackface. Quick footnote, there is also something called a drag king where women might perform as men, but that's a different, an entirely different subject in part because, of course, yeah. women often dress as men in everyday life and, and it doesn't really matter. Uh, so that was a long-winded answer, uh, but that's what, that's where the article comes from. And it, it is that frustration at a sometimes simplistic public debate about important issues. Yeah, and I think that there's two things I want to read. One of which, I'll read your article in a second, because the first paragraph really encapsulates what you just said. But I read one of your articles that your article was called Cancel War Stories, and it had to do with gender ideology. But you have something in there that I thought was really amazing, and it was called Rules for Intellectual Life. And this is your writing. I will advocate for a position only after responsible study and evaluation to construct, to the best of my ability, a compelling analysis of reality. I know that my analysis could be wrong because all human knowledge seeking in a complex world is incomplete and fallible. I will not adopt a different analysis simply because of institutional demands or peer pressure that does not attempt to provide mutually intelligible reasons, but instead rely on official or informed coercion. So I thought that was really cool. And I thought it encapsulated who you are as an intellectual. Um, as shared during email, I've read numerous articles from your uh from your own page, I've read your book, uh, The End of Patriarchy. In my attempt to really understand where you come from, you know, your 30 years of diligence on feminism and as a professor of journalism, it's been really cool to get to know you on as a writer. And so your opening paragraph, which is what I thought was very compelling in the articles, is on the left, an endorsement of drag queens reading to children in libraries is presented as celebrating diverse sexualities and challenging the restrictive gender norms of the dominant culture. For many on the right, Drag Queen Story Hour undermines traditional gender norms and validates homosexuality, with more strident voices suggesting it's an attempt to recruit children into unhealthy lifestyles. And then you said, it's basically pick a side, right or left, to avoid the issues. Those seem to be the choices Yours, obviously, is a completely different yeah. purview than either one of those. 
So why don't we, just to frame the discussion a little bit, talk a little bit about what do you think is, do you believe anything on the left specific to what they talk about makes sense in the sense that it is a way of helping children understand the normative gender issues um, are not the only way and that there's not just a binary. Is there any healthy aspect to the left's or the progressive left's ideology on Drag Queen Story Hour? Sure. I mean, I, as someone, I'm 64 years old. I was born in 1958. I've lived through that period of history where there was an enormous change in how the culture came to understand questions of sex and gender. Mm -hmm. So, you know, when I was a kid, uh, none of the conversation we're having today would have been possible because those <laughs> no. issues, and it's a good thing that those issues are on the table now. Uh, just to make it personal, uh, I'm currently married to a woman, but my own sexual history is complex. I've lived both as a gay man and a straight man in the world. Uh, and when I think about how I grew up and how complete the silence was on questions of sexuality, and how tortured as a child I was, I don't mean literally, but but psychologically tortured by not having a way to understand my own life, my own body, my own feelings, having no one to speak to about them. The world's a lot better off today. Right? So in that sense, yes, expanding the space, including spaces in schools, public libraries, other public venues, expanding the space for talking about the complexity of human life is a very good thing. But the question is how best to accomplish that. Personally, I don't think Drag Story Hour accomplishes it very well for two reasons. One I've already talked about, which is the the way that it it's understood by a lot of women to be a, a kind of mocking of women in a patriarchal culture. But the other reason is more pragmatic, is there are lots of less dramatic and controversial ways to open up these discussions in public. So in this period of what we often call the culture wars, if you're on the left, as I am, if you're a feminist, as I am, and you want to expand the space for this conversation, including this conversation for kids who are struggling with it as well, why go to the most uh, hot button way to do it? It doesn't make any sense to me, intellectually and politically, it also just doesn't make any sense as a, ma a matter of strategy. So imagine you have, you know, let's call them ordinary people. I guess that means people not like you and me. I don't know. Um, but people who are just trying to live their lives and they might not have any strong feelings one way or the other on these matters, but they, they might hear about drag queens reading stories to relatively young children and think, that just doesn't seem right. That doesn't sound right. That doesn't seem age appropriate. Right? In other words, ordinary people might just have an intuitive sense that this is an odd way to bring up difficult questions. And I think they're right. So to me, it's, it's both on principled grounds and pragmatic grounds not to support something like Drag Story Hour, but to try and find better ways to open up these conversations. Well, that, that helps a lot. I think because if you look at and I should be clear with my own biases. I am, as we, you mentioned, I'm not a progressive. I'm mm -hmm. more in the left or the liberal area. And I irritate my brethren almost on a daily basis mm -hmm. in my own reporting over the last year, specific to gender ideology, critical mm -hmm. race theory, defund the police. I'm, I won't get into any of that mm -hmm. with you, but maybe off camera we can talk Thank about you. it. But the ideas there are specific to this is that 
I have two, and as a liberal, I have, I interviewed two friends of mine who participate in drag, one here in San Francisco, mm-hmm. and another of my buddies who I just talked with this morning, who's a wonderful performer in New York City. And so I asked him, I said, hey, you know, I'm talking with this professor about an article he wrote on uh, the whole drag queen story hour. And he's like, oh, that'd be great. And he's just this wonderful Nelly gay man, and I love him to death. And so I said, hey, I just want to get your take. Why do you do it? Mm-hmm. And he said, Thing, something to the effect, and I'm paraphrasing, but he said, Joey, you know, I grew up being teased. I didn't know that I was gay. Mm-hmm. And, and when I was in my teens, I was very feminine. And so it was one of those things where I survived that. You know, you mentioned mm-hmm. torture. It's That is a yeah. form of psychological torture for kids. And he said, because I survived that, I wanted to celebrate this survival, that I got mm-hmm. through it, that I integrated it into myself as I realized I was gay. And so my way of expressing this is to entertain people in drag. And he is a beautiful drag artist. I mean, sure. he's so it's one of those things where I I was like, okay, so what what does that mean for you? And he said, well, it's entertaining. And I, I've never thought about it as a form of misogyny. And I've never thought about it as reinforcing the patriarchy. And I said, because that's kind of the thesis mm-hmm. of the article. And I said, please understand that... Um, Robert Jensen is a feminist and a storied one at that. So he's been studying that. And as I mentioned off camera, I would not have understood your purview a year ago mm-hmm. because I interviewed Helen Joyce and Julie Bindle and a couple other very powerful mm-hmm. feminists. I dove into the feminist literature over the last year, and it really does help me as yeah. someone who was, let's just say, ignorant of all things feminist. It, I totally understand where you're coming mm-hmm. from based on the fact that it's not just a left or right issue. There's an another point sure. which is hey you know is this a is this the most appropriate way mm-hmm. to share it and and so one thing that i thought specifically my listeners who don't understand what this means let me help them out so there is the drag string storyhour.org and this is the organization that mm-hmm. is most powerful in the zeitgeist and so i want to at least educate the audience here so on their about section at Drag, Screen Co- Drag Queen Story Hour, it says, Drag Screen Story Hour captures the imagination and play of gender fluidity of childhood and gives glamorous, positive, and unabashedly queer role models. Our vision is a world where kids can learn from LGBTQ plus stories and experience to love themselves, celebrate the fabulous diversity in their communities, and stand up for what they believe in each other. Some of the testimonials were very powerful. I won't read all of them, but there's one from the Brooklyn Public Library. It says, those of us who work with young children on a regular basis know that children can dress and act in a variety of ways. And supporting their choices builds self-confidence and can help avoid serious problems later in life. By creating an atmosphere of acceptance and reading stories about acceptance and differences, Drag String Story Hour helps to stave off teasing and bullying. This is from Judy Zuckerman, the Director of Youth and Family Services from Brooklyn Public Library. There's another glowing one from San Francisco Public Library, Biz Warden. I won't bore you or the audience with that. But one thing to know, too, um, is that this is a very well-funded organization now. Mm-hmm. According to some of the literature I read, on the other side of this equation, I'm sure you've probably read Christopher Rufo's opinions on numerous different ideologies, whether it's creative, <laughs> critical race theory, defund or not. He talked in his article that within a few years, the state neutral events have turned into state subsidized drag queen performances, 
New York City public schools alone have more than 200,000 funding from the municipal government, and they began hosting dozens of drag performances in elementary schools, middle schools, high schools, and all five boroughs. And California State Senator Scott Weiner said that he might even propose Drag Queen 101 as part of the K-12 curriculum with a little tongue-in-cheek. So this is obviously very front and center to our body politic today. Does any of that, you know, you just mentioned to me, like, where you sit, does any of that ring true? Or to your point, you mentioned in the article that it might be better served if we actually had gay or lesbian people read the books to the children themselves. What are your... What are your thoughts on that? Well, first of all, I think we can recognize the complexity. So it might be that there are positive uh, outcomes from gay or drag story hour in some sense. I'm not saying it's, you know, a a negative across the board. Certainly the testimonial of your friend about how he grew up and how that became a way to express what was unexpressible is perfectly coherent. I understand it completely. I've Talk to many men who would say the same thing. Here's the other part of it. I heard after that article was posted, I heard from many, many women who said, I'm so glad to read this critique because I've always felt uncomfortable with with drag queens. I've always felt they were making fun of me. Mm-hmm. That Women say, you know, remember that women um, don't just choose to wear makeup or, you know, to dress in a sexually provocative way. These are pressures they feel in a male dominant culture to appear in a way that looks, you know, conventionally attractive to men. Mm-hmm. And I've spoken to women who fought their whole lives to overcome the training they had as girls to present themselves in a certain way so that when men take up those same presentation styles in this sort of so-called flamboyant way, it's not hard to understand why women are angry often. And so whatever the positive effect of drag might be for some men and they're predominantly gay men. My question to them is, do you care about the the pain you're inflicting on women? Do you, do you care about that? Right. The other analogy um, I used in addition to blackface in the article was uh, Native American nicknames and mascots for teams. Mm-hmm. Well, lots of white people love going to the Atlanta stadium uh, this tells you something about my knowledge of football. I already forgot what the Atlanta football team is called. <laughs> the Falcons. Uh, the Falcons. But they do this tomahawk chop, tomahawk chop, which has been. That's the Atlanta Braves, isn't it? Baseball? Uh, the Atlanta Braves. Okay. Well, yeah. this tells you about my knowledge about sports more generally. <laughs> That's okay. Well, Braves. Yes. Yes. The yes. Falcons are Braves. Okay. Yes. Bear with me. I haven't seen a it's professional okay. sporting event in about 30 years. <laughs> okay. So indigenous people, Native Americans say we find that a kind of mocking. It's not an authentic native practice to go around with the tomahawk chop, right? right? And white people dig in their heels, right? Now, people like me critique that white appropriation of a caricature of American Indians. Well, as far as I can tell, it's the same. The analogy holds exactly. So it's not that people don't get something from drag. I understand they do. The question is, at what cost? And can we advance the, the cause of both gender equality, that is between men and women, as well as sexual liberation for gay and lesbian people. Can we advance that in other ways? And I think we can. And I, my whole you know, adult life, I've been working with people who try to do that. So, you know, again, what I want to do is press the, the dogma that one sees on both right and left. Uh, I'm actually working on a book on this where I expand on all of these things. And it's a book that 
you know, conservative people are going to hate half of it. And liberal people are going to hate the other half. And it means nobody will buy it and I'll have no more friends. OK, <laughs> that's but that's probably a good book. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but that's what I'm trying to do is to step back and say, what are the principles that we claim to hold and how do we apply them across the board? And I see no compelling reason to continue things like Drag Story Hour. I see a lot of reasons to stop using drag. Uh, and I see a lot of alternatives to try and promote a healthy um, a healthy uh, outreach to children about how sex, sexuality, and gender can be understood. Uh, but that said, I do want to emphasize the, the testimony you were talking about and that early childhood experience, I don't just understand sort of academically. I understand it very personally. Mm -hmm. uh, and it is, uh, it is a, a kind of harshness many of us grew up with that we still carry scars from. The question is how to best try and deal with that, I think. No, I like that. And I, I interviewed a woman named Stella O'Malley, who is a psychoanalyst in Ireland about mm -hmm. gender ideology. And one of the reasons that I was so intrigued to have her on the show was that she suffered from gender dysphoria as a child. Mm -hmm. And she lived through it for five or six years before she went into female puberty. And after which she realized that she was mm -hmm. happy being a female. And yeah. part of her reason for going into uh, her practice as a psychotherapist was so she could actually help yes. people because she came from that spot. Mm -hmm. And that's another reason that I thought you were so intriguing is that you bring this different level based on your own upbringing, based on your mm -hmm. own psychological torture specific to not knowing who you were. Mm -hmm. You know, you were a feminine boy or you were a macho girl or, you know, where, where, where do I fit within all of this? And that's a, another reason why I thought your opinion meant so much specifically to me in attempting to understand this. Yeah. And then on the right, you know, as I mentioned, Christopher Rufo is a guy that I'll go to uh, he's the Manhattan Institute scholar, and he has a lot of very powerful opinions that are not well received uh, by the left, our our brethren, if you will. Mm -hmm. And so that's where, and then Fox, obviously Fox does a lot of this. Tucker Carlson recently had um, a Maryland suburb library host on there talk about what was going on, and they showed inappropriate drag queen people wearing inappropriate clothing, mm -hmm. twerking kind of, you know, sexualizing some of what yep. they were doing. And, you know, I we haven't done any actual reporting on this, so I don't have any reporters going out and digging into this yet. But I couldn't find any truly abhorrent examples of them doing sexualized things. But there are reports out there that these drag queens are going past where they need to, specifically with the younger children, whether that's the mm. under eight, if you will. And, and there is something there. I have a nine-year-old little boy who, when, when I was talking about this, he asked me, you know, what, what is a drag queen daddy? And I tried to explain it to him and he really didn't understand. So I don't know how, do you have any issues no. specifically to no. the younger generation, like let's just say nine and under, does that concern yeah. you at all? I do. And I think that's another aspect of the problem of drag. I didn't address it in my article because um, I haven't uh, thoroughly researched the degree to which in these drag performances, 
there is a kind of hypersexualization. Now, if you're talking about drag queens performing in bars with an all adult audience, it's clear that this kind of sexualization is part of the performance. For sure. Uh, I've seen video that suggests in some of what are called uh, family drag hours or drag for all ages that that happens, but that doesn't happen just in drag. That happens across the culture. And this is a concern that feminists like Julie Bindle and others about the hypersexualization of the culture, including the way that that is now routine for children. Uh, Julie and I both have done a lot of work on the pornography industry. That's the place you see it most, you know, in, um, in frightening ways, yeah. young children exposed to graphic, sexually explicit material that is not only not age appropriate, it's, it's demeaning, cruel and degrading to women. It's overtly racist. Um, it's not a it's not a healthy part of the culture for any age. But of course, children are being subject to this. We see it across the board. We see these uh, beauty pageants for young girls where girls, you know, in elementary school age are already performing these hyper-sexualized routines. This has become kind of the background noise of the culture, and I think it's very disturbing. I don't think you build a healthy culture by pressing children into sexual ideas, sexual thinking, sexual behavior that's not developmentally appropriate. The, the story I always uh, tell about this involves my own son, who's now an adult, but uh, when he, he was in junior high, he was telling me that a girl was asking him out and he felt uncomfortable. And I was just exploring that with him. And he said, he, he finally said, Dad, I just want to be a kid as long as I can. And I thought that was incredibly insightful for a, a boy to say, listen, I feel all this pressure and I don't want it yet. Right? And I think, you know, that pressure is all over the place for kids. Now, often we hear about it in the context of social media, you know, people being um, encouraged to to post sexualized selfies at an inappropriate age. That's the most obvious and most recent uh, part of it. But this has been a process going on uh, for decades now. And I don't think it's healthy for anybody, especially for kids. How old was your son when he asked that question or when he explained that to you? Well, I'm old enough that my memory isn't as good as it used to be, but it, uh, it would have been about sixth or seventh grade. Okay. Um, right so now, thir 12, 13. Yeah. And at okay. that point, you know, eventually kids do, you know, confront this hormones, bodies change. But he had a, he had an intuitive sense and this didn't come from me coaching him. This came from him saying, I don't like what I'm being pushed to have to think about. I'm just a yeah. kid. And I wonder if, if, you, you know, surveyed the children of America and found a way to get at that. How many would say something like that? Like, I just want to keep all of this adult level sexuality at bay for a while until I'm ready to handle it. Well, I think that's really a lot of the pushback from parents across the board, yeah. whether it's right, left or center. And I can say as a liberal, again, when we actually did some reporting on the Don't Say Gay bill in mm -hmm. Florida, yeah. And the reason we did so was obviously the same reason. It was this, this, yeah. you know, massive divide culturally and, and what the bill really did, and they did it on purpose because lawyers are very cognizant of every word they write is they made it really ambiguous. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so I won't dive too deep into it, but what we actually did pull out of that reporting is that most of the parents were not concerned about the gay because there was no don't say gay in the bill, just to mm -hmm. be clear with any listener. It's that they really didn't want 
a gender ideology discussion to take place yeah. with their children less than eight. Yeah. And I read somewhere in, in one of the one of my reporters um, is that someone came up with a clever name that said, wait until after eight, which I thought was, it was more clear. But the same thing stood true there that I think stands true yeah. here with yeah. a lot of the arguments by the conservative right is that, hey, I don't want my seven-year-old, eight-year-old mm -hmm. exposed to discussions around, I can be any gender I want. I can be a boy. I can be a girl. Yeah. I was assigned at birth yeah. and I was assigned incorrectly. And I bring that up on purpose because you wrote about that specifically mm -hmm. in your book, The End of Patriarchy. And you didn't, you said something and I'm paraphrasing you, but it's doctors observe, they don't assign, right? Yeah. yeah. I think what's most important here to step back and, and then I'll address your question is we now have this string of letters, LGBTQIA. You know, yeah. And what that really is, is about merging the transgender movement in with the gay and lesbian movement. And like many, uh, in the radical feminist camp, I would want to separate them because I have, you know, for my entire adult life been um, a, an advocate for gay and lesbian rights, gay and lesbian liberation. Uh, again, something Julie Bindle and I have in common. Yeah. Right. I think that is a very different question than what I would call the ideology of the transgender movement today. And so I want to separate them. I want to find ways to embrace and endorse gay and lesbian life as a, a part of every society uh, and to kind of normalize it. And what I mean by that is I used to use this example in my classes. I would say if I came into class on Monday morning and just, you know, the way that professors sometimes just chat before they get into a subject and said, well, I had a great weekend. I hope you did, too. My wife and I went out to the beach and we had a great time. Nobody would stop and say, wait, Jensen, don't impose your heterosexuality on me. Don't be telling me about your wife, right? Right. and you know, and kind of subtly, you know, endorsing heterosexuality. But if I had come into the class and said, you know, my husband and I went to the beach, then people would say that. So yeah. uh, we have to remember that uh, the discussion, you know, don't say gay. We say straight all the time and nobody cares. Right? <laughs> There's true. conversations are taken for granted about heterosexuality and to penalize people who are gay and lesbian for speaking at all, I think uh, it's really absurd. Uh, the trans question is different. There, uh, There's a longstanding feminist critique of the transgender movement. Mm -hmm. It goes back to the late 70s. The first book, important book, was written in 1979. Right? And, and again, feminists like Julie Bindle have been uh, uh, struggling with this for a long time. So to, to go to your question, uh, in the trans movement, it's typical to say you are assigned a sex at birth, but sex is not assigned. Sex is a biological reality. It's at the heart of how human beings reproduce. We're a sexually dimorphic species. And the only people or the only time when, to, when naming the sex of an infant is at all problematic is with the category we sometimes call intersex or disorders mm -hmm. of sexual development. In other words, those are biological questions about the, the physical realities of that human being, right? Otherwise, if you, if you took, you know, a hundred babies and had, you know, a hundred people assign their sex, male or female, 
you would you would get a hundred percent agreement, right? So nothing yeah. is assigned; it's observed, and we understand the biology of that. One of the things the transgender movement has tried to do is get us to forget that basic biology is, in fact, straightforward like that. Yeah. Going on from that, there's a lot of questions. Uh, I'm in the middle of writing some new 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 things on this about public policy, about you know access to single space, single sex spaces for women, like a changing room, uh, whether men who identify as women, but are now called trans women should compete in athletics. Well, there's a good, I think, compelling feminist case that the rights of girls and women are being ignored uh, in that debate by the left, the liberals, the progressives. Okay. Mm -hmm. So again, trying to assert that now, you know, I realize reasonable people can disagree, right? What I'm concerned about, and this goes to the, the article cancel war stories you talked about, is that in left liberal circles now to even articulate this radical feminist analysis of transgender ideology is basically to be guaranteed you will be shunned from all liberal left spaces as, as I often have been. So that goes back to that question about intellectual rigor. Are we going to engage in discussions about controversial and often very emotionally loaded questions with a commitment to evidence and logic? Are we going to go into public spaces with a sense of freedom of expression and debate? Or are we going to try and shut it down? And I, again, here I'm an equal opportunity critic. The right tries to shut these debates down in a lot of ways. Sometimes the left does as well. And uh, I think these these intellectual standards, as you spoke about in the beginning, mm -hmm. and a robust commitment to freedom of expression is important. I don't think you have either uh, a healthy thinking or a healthy political culture without them. I agree 100%. And I actually think that a lot of your work, not just this article, and this is kind of what I mentioned to you during the email. I said, hey, I really want to get your purview on Drag String Story Hour, but I also want to get your opinions on many of the articles that I've read in your book yeah. and everything else. The ideology on the left that believes that drag screens are cool to read to the kids are the same. If you looked at a Venn diagram with all mm -hmm. these aforementioned topics, defund the police, critical race theory, gender ideology, uh, drag queen hour, if there was a Venn diagram, they'd all be right in the middle mm -hmm. because that is the ideology that supports inclusivity, equity, diversity, at all costs and even goes against a lot of the grain specific to the big lenses. I don't know if you've, as an academic, I'm sure you've heard of Dr. Jonathan Haidt and mm -hmm. some of his work, but he wrote two books that were powerful in my understanding of politics. The first was um, why good people are divided by religion and politics, the righteous mm -hmm. mind, and then the coddling of the American mind. Mm -hmm. And both of those books talk to the ideologies that we're now dealing with specific to yeah. our body politic in that there are so many contiguous beliefs around defund. And if you look at the defund piece as one example, when my progressive left friends were saying, we want to abolish the police based on the fact that the origins of the police department were based in racism and oppression. I was like, all right, well, let's just say we agree on that because that's true. But that was 230 years ago. What do we? Well, what do you do about that? Where do you? When you say abolish, do you mean explode yeah. 
the organization yeah. where you have, you know, there's a million uniformed police officers out there. So what does yeah. that look like? And, and right. Yeah. Okay. So let's take those three things you mentioned, um, critical race theory, um, transgender ideology and the defund the police movement. Okay. Mm -hmm. Um, I agree with critical race theory. I started reading it when I first went back to school in the 1980s. It was exciting because as a white person trying to take apart my own upbringing in a racist society, it was very helpful. Critical race theory doesn't cost white people anything. It doesn't take anything away from white people. It helps us understand a fundamentally white supremacist society, how it changes over time, but often stays the same at the core. Okay. Transgender ideology does not simply include others. It takes away from girls and women. So that's a different question. There isn't a, a single, you know, I'm for inclusivity, 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 therefore I'm for the trans movement's public policy demands. Okay. Defund the police, I think, is uh, in some ways different uh, because, number one, it's a slogan. And the first question is, if you're politically pragmatic and you would want to advance your agenda, is it a good slogan? Yeah. And that I think, I think the, yeah. I think the, the, you know, the, the word is in on that. It's a bad slogan. It's a terrible, yeah. Right. It's a bad slogan. And I don't mean that judgmentally because it alienates even people who would want to support your program. Okay. So there is a history of policing rooted in all sorts of nasty realities uh, of the United States. I used to live in Texas and I used to remind people that the Texas Rangers, this storied police force, started as a group of vigilante thugs to kill Mexicans, basically. You know, I mean, yeah. the history of the Texas Rangers is not pretty. Okay. No. But it's also true that today police have both a positive effect in the world and a very regressive effect in the world. The racialized disparities in the use of force, especially deadly force, uh, are pretty well documented now. And those are carried out by police police departments, police officers. So a critique of contemporary policing in that racial arena is completely appropriate. It's also true that in in a lot of places, especially urban areas, police policing has become overly aggressive and that essentially social problems, and this has been you know discussed at length, uh, mental illness, homelessness, poverty are being dealt with by a law enforcement agency that's not trained to deal with them. So two things are true. We have a racialized disparity in policing and we have a kind of over-policing. And I think we should correct both of those. But defund the police doesn't capture that. Here we're talking about complex interactions between social forces and institutions. We're talking about individual failures because in any profession there are individual failures. I know that because I was a professor and you want to see individual failures, go, go to a university faculty. Uh, it's, it's, uh, readily evident. Uh, so I, you know, I wish defund the police had never become a slogan. And so sometimes now we see people on the left who dig in their heels because to them, defund the police is a series of critiques and program suggestions, which I would agree with, right? It's the phrase that has now become, you know, a whipping boy for the for the right. Okay, and so the right doesn't want defund the police to go away because it's a great way for them to beat up, you know, on progressive critics of social inequality. This is what we call a real mess. I don't know what else to call it. It's a mess (laughs) because 
in this culture, especially the short attention span, the quick news cycles, um, the audience driven, both social and mass media realities, it's hard to get at any of this. Now we're lucky we're here. We're spending a whole hour talking. It's great. Um, but try to fit what I just said into a soundbite on cable TV news. And it's pretty hard. Uh, and that's just, that's an impediment that isn't about, you know, right or left ideology. It's about the structure of contemporary dialogue, especially mediated dialogue. I agree. And that's actually why I brought those subjects. And mm -hmm. critical race theory, to your point, I loved it. I dove in and, and read Kimberly Crenshaw and Richard Delgado and all of the original gangsters, mm -hmm. if you will, on what that looks like. And I agree with you that critical race theory as a academic exercise is wonderful. My brother studied it in law school. I have mm -hmm. friends who studied it in graduate school. But the question then again, is critical race theory being taught to our kids is where the misnomer is. It's the same thing with defund the police. We're not teaching critical race theory to my nine-year-old as mm -hmm. an example. And that's where a lot of the politicians are saying, we're going to remove critical race theory from school. And you're like, well, it's not in school at that level. Now that said, oh. intersectionality, which is what Kimberly Crenshaw coined, specific to women's plight is different than a black woman's plight, which is different than a black handicapped woman's plight. And it was the intersectionality of all of that oppression, which all makes sense. But those pieces, intersectionality, are in fact being taught in schools because I've pulled public records on that. And that's what I mean by the fact that the ideology of our progressive left is similar and that they push back really hard without a lot of knowledge on the complexity of these things, specifically to me. I've been called a transphobe because I push back on feminist ideology mm -hmm. with gender. I've been called a racist because I push back on the defund the police piece. And this mm -hmm. is all, you know, within my own platform. But that's why I wanted to get your take on this as no. a professor. And then another thing no. that I think stands true with this is safe spaces on college campuses. So I have to get your take on this because I've had two professors on previously. One was a former professor at Berkeley and one was a professor at USF here in mm -hmm. San Francisco. That same ideology, safe space, if you will, I think had origins that I thought made sense, yeah. specific to uh, if it was, you know, black or gay or trans or people that needed to be with like kind to feel safe to talk about yeah. their angst and, yeah. you know, what was going on. I get that. But then it kind of expanded into, it, it, you know, ideological and emotional harm. So if you saw someone wearing a red cap, in the yeah. quad preaching the GOP mantra and he loved Donald Trump. Now you're so wounded that you say things yeah. like, well, speech is violence and I need to go get help and I need to be, you know, in yeah. a safe space to talk about. What is your thoughts on safe space? Okay. So let's, let's go back to, you know, the time when women, people of color were first starting to say, listen, the environment we're being educated in is pretty toxic. Uh, yeah. So take uh, sexual violence, uh, especially in law schools. There was a way that predominantly male professors often told stories about rape in a criminal justice course talking about this. And of course, some percentage of the women in that classroom had been raped and that kind of cavalier treatment of it was what we would call triggering. OK, yep. and that's real. Yeah. Uh, anybody who's been traumatized and, and been forced to sit through a trivialization or a mocking of that trauma has a real physiological response to it often, uh, psychological and, and sometimes physiological. All right, so do trigger warnings, this term that's come of, of age, mm -hmm. to, to let people know that 
the class is going to have a, a frank discussion about sexual violence, let's say. Is that appropriate? I would say yes, because it helps students prepare. If a student doesn't feel up to it, you know, they can they can react uh, by either, you know, leaving the class or talking to the professor. Okay, all of that's fine. Right. Now, uh, let's go to critical race theory, which argues that racism is not simply a product of individual bigotry, but it's sort of baked into some of the institutions. I think that's a compelling yeah. thesis. It's a, it's a right? brief thesis. Right. Uh, but imagine you're in a classroom and there's a conversation about critical race theory and a white student or even a, a student of color says, I don't think there is such an institutional racism in this country. And I think things are different than that. Yeah. Well, should a student of color say, well, that's triggering me because it's denying my experience of institutional racism. I don't think that's appropriate because now you're saying essentially there's an intellectual line that must be adhered to, right? That you yes. can't be part of this classroom if you don't accept a certain hypothesis. And that's counter to any, any understanding of a healthy, you know, intellectual climate. So again, safe spaces, trigger warnings, are they good or bad? Well, it depends on how they're being deployed, right? So you mentioned, you know, red hats, mega hats. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, I remember reading about a university that was going to uh, discipline students for chalking on the sidewalk on campus a pro-Trump message during the 2016 election. And uh, somebody I was talking to said, that's great because, uh, the, you know, those Trump messages they're very triggering for a lot of people. And I said, listen, <laughs> Donald Trump, like him or not, and I don't, is the presidential candidate of one of the two major parties in the United States. Are you really telling me that students do not have the right to express support for that candidate? I mean, we're not right. talking about somebody promoting a Nazi ideology and, you know, celebrating lynching and, and death camps or something. Right. right. And and the, the person I was talking to, you know, had to kind of grudgingly say, yeah, OK, maybe. Right? But, you know, those are the, the 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 kinds of examples that make the news because they are so easy to caricature in a certain way. But they're they're real and you have to deal with them. So I I always approach my own classes and my own life on campus saying I am respectful of people for whom certain kinds of discussions are perhaps troubling, but I'm also embracing the concept of intellectual diversity and freedom of speech, a deep sense of freedom of speech without which the modern university doesn't function. Okay, well, I don't see any conflict between those things. There are hard cases, right, where particular people's psychological reaction to something uh, a kind of distress might be so extreme that some sort of intervention is needed. But mm -hmm. those we I think we do better to to handle on a case by case basis rather than, you know, making sweeping rules about what can and can't be said in a, in a classroom or on a campus. Because obviously, as a professor, you spend a lot of your time in academia, both as a student and as a professor. How has it? Obviously, I agree with you on the trigger warning specific mm -hmm. to we're going to talk about rape, but you know, as a history professor, because one of my, the professor I interviewed was a history professor. And he said, you know, if you walk into a history class, you could preface that, Hey, you're going to get triggered 
a lot this semester because there's a lot of bad shit that took place in our history and rape is one of them and oppression's another Mm -hmm. and you know genocide and and it's just it's brutal like our history is brutal global history is brutal right Mm -hmm. uh ancient history is even more brutal and i think that that's that's where i think that you know for me as i have two little boys i have 11 and nine year olds if if they went to berkeley which is Mm -hmm. an example and to pull it out of the abstract berkeley went that shit crazy because Ben Shapiro was asked to speak. Mm-hmm. And this was four or five years ago. There were $600,000 of extra security that he yeah. was platforming evil, that his speech was violent, yeah. actual violence. Cause that's a big belief on the far left is that speech mm-hmm. is violence. How about we just isolate it to that? Do you believe speech is violence? Uh, obviously speech can and often u- is used in the course of violent activity, right? In other words, yeah. um, Violence is intensified by speech all the time. Uh, I think in the sense you mean it, can um, a respectful discussion of intellectual differences, meaning not insulting, not abusive, can a respectful discussion of intellectual differences ever be considered a form of violence? I have a hard time accepting that. Uh, and, mm-hmm. and on this, uh, I, you know, you mentioned the left position. I think actually the left is quite split on this. There are people on the left who support a more traditional conception of free speech that says, absent a direct demonstration of some sort of harm that comes from the speech, um, you know, defamation, other kinds of harm, you know, lying about people. Libel, right. That absent, or... absent mm-hmm. that kind of direct, um, harm that we want the most robust, you know, space for speech available. That's a traditionally left perspective. There's a, another um, aspect of the left that will say things like speech can be a form of violence. Uh, you know, as a metaphor, I think there is some value in thinking about the, the, the implications of speech and how it's not violence per se, but it can do a kind of psychic violence on people. But you know, as a way to actually implement policy on a college campus about who can speak and who can't, I don't think it's very useful. On, on the question of on liberal campuses, conservative speakers being protested or or denied access, I think we have to, you know, again, look at the the, the nuance. I'm no big fan of people like Ben Shapiro. I don't think they add a lot of important you know, insights into the conversations. But if Ben Shapiro had been invited by, you know, a student group, let's say, at the University of Texas where I taught, I certainly would have taken no action to try to derail that invitation or that event if some of my critical students wanted to go and protest Ben Shapiro's speech. I would encourage them to do so, so long as they don't impede on Ben Shapiro's speech. In other words, I I mean, I haven't studied Ben Shapiro's work um, in deep, in depth, but I I find it a little hard to imagine he would say anything that would rise to the level of incitement, let's say, Uh, you know, that that would be um, the kind of thing you actually could imagine criminal prosecution of. And in, in absent that kind of threat, let it happen. Again, that's an intellectual principle I believe in, and that's also a pragmatic political decision. Because if you want to hand right-wing forces a gift, 
try and block one of them from speaking on a campus. That's an incredible <laughs> political gift to the right. Yes, it is. Right? Because then yeah. they can go on Fox News and they can go, you know, on various social media platforms and post a, you know, 30 second clip of some student shouting at them. Right? The same thing has happened to feminist speakers who want to critique trans ideology. You know, this yeah. attempt to silence them. Uh, the, the term deplatform has come about, right? The, the attempt to deny what would otherwise be a legitimate platform. Uh, it just either in principle or, or pragmatically, it's just a bad idea. And so, you know, I'm someone who's been deplatformed. Uh, yes. I've, I've had speaking invitations offered and then rescinded when people complained. I've had speaking invitations where I, I show up and people try to shout me down. You know, I've been through it all. And I, I'm proud to say I have never tried to shout down or block another speaker. Um, I just, I don't, I don't see the point either in principle or in political benefit. Well, that's, and you've also, one of your favorite bookstores that you gave your books away free to stopped, <laughs> stopped yeah. selling your books because they deemed you a transphobe for agreeing with yeah. feminist ideology around gender. Yeah. Right? So, I mean, yeah, that was the first of many of these. I would call them shunnings. You know, when you talk yeah. about close knit religious communities where if someone is branded a heretic, they're shunned, they're cast out of the community. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'm not looking for sympathy. I'm doing fine. You know, I have friends, I have political <laughs> associations, but I did lose a lot of those associations on the left through a kind of shunning where because I didn't accept liberal left ideology on transgenderism and offered a radical feminist critique. I was deemed unacceptable no matter what the subject was. So organizing meetings that had nothing to do with the sex gender system, you know, maybe they were about, right. you know, global Climate capitalism. Yeah. yeah. Um, I was simply uh, not welcome. Uh, and I don't think that's internally healthy for the left. Uh, you know, there are things, there are positions that are inconsistent with a left perspective. Like if I showed up at a left meeting on global trade and started ranting overtly racist, you know, invective, I think it would be within the rights of the group to say, you know, we really don't need that here because <laughs> yeah. our yeah. work on global trade is premised on racial equality yeah. and a rejection of the way white supremacy has structured the distribution of wealth and power. And therefore, what you're articulating is at odds with any decent interpretation of, uh, you know, a left politics, you know, political groups, uh, you know, don't have to take everybody. I mean, you, you couldn't have a functioning political group if there weren't a kind of exclusion based on ideas. That's what political right. groups are for. But the question is, has either the left, the right, the center is, are there groups where that has become a kind of dogma instead of encouraging a debate about things that people in good conscience can disagree about? Has it become a little bit, um, doctrinaire? Uh, and I, and I'm going to use a term that I don't mean in any technical sense, but I've been in political spaces that, that felt a bit cultish, right? That here is, here's the party line and you must accept it. And I don't think that's healthy. Um, I had a friend, he's, he's now dead, uh, but whose political life went back to the 1930s. He actually fought in the Spanish Civil War on behalf of the Republic. You know, he was a storied wow. lefty. Uh, and for a while, he was a member of the Communist Party USA. 
And he left in the 1950s, as many did when it became clear the crimes of Stalin, you know, were right. being covered up. But my friend Abe, uh, he, he described a, a political life that felt a bit cultish. There was the Communist Party. There were the commissars. There was the official line. Mm -hmm. And you accepted it or you weren't part of the group. And there was no internal debate. And hence, if there's no internal debate, there's no way to correct mistakes. Uh, and, and Abe talked about how free it felt to finally leave the Communist Party, even though he agreed with the principles behind a, a critique of capitalism, even though he believed this was worth fighting and risking his life for, right? The minute that a, a movement can't critique itself, to me, that movement yeah. is in deep trouble. And that's kind of what I was pushing here, Doc. I mean, I, I think that the idea for me is that as someone who is genuinely frightened of people like Donald Trump yeah. and what he wants to do to our republic, yeah. what scares me most, and I actually do take a charitable lens with the ideology of my brethren. I don't think mm -hmm. anybody has you know, malice or forethought specific mm -hmm. to critical race theory or gender ideology. But what you mentioned in some of your writings, I've experienced on my own, mm -hmm. specific to reporting on these topics. Sure. These topics are very polarized and that I don't get attacked by the right mm -hmm. ever. It <laughs> doesn't matter if I'm, unless, even if I say things about Donald Trump, they'll be like, yeah, he's a jackass, but I like his policies or blah, blah, blah. But ev the, the biggest vitriol thrown at me mm -hmm. is from the left, the progressive mm -hmm. left, to be clear. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned that in one of your writings as well. I can't actually cite which well, one, but uh, that it was the lib the progressive left that was most toxic and most, I don't want to say cruel, those are my words, but that you, you, you legitimately felt like they were coming after you. Well, yes, although I have taken my share of lumps from the right, uh, most notably in the immediate aftermath of 9-11, when, like many in the anti-war movement, I wrote suggesting that a mad rush to war in Central Asia and the Middle East was not an appropriate reaction to the terrorist crimes of 9-11. Well, that got me in a lot of trouble. Yes, it was it mostly right-wing people. In fact, I was lucky to survive with my job. Uh, but I was under, per, you know, persistent attack for months after 9-11. Right. Uh, that was from a, a political configuration on which I had many disagreements about the role of the United States in the world. Okay. Yeah. And so in a sense, you know how to negotiate when your enemies come at you, right? That that's an old story, right? You, you're on the other side of that's a political true. divide yeah. and people attack you. Now, a lot of the ways they attacked me, I thought were unfair. They caricatured and distorted what I had to say. That's also kind of comes with the territory. Your political enemies don't, you know, go out of their way to to actually understand you often. Right, right. But, so that was a an experience that was um, intense for the better part of a year. Uh, yeah. Lots of, you know, threats and and all of that sort of thing. The the tension I've had with my left comrades almost exclusively over the sex gender question, mm -hmm. they just feel a little different because they're You've committed to a political project that you believe is based on critical self-reflection. You know, like the anti-racist movement is based on critical self-reflection about the history of American white supremacy. Yeah. Right? But when that critical self-reflection isn't extended in all ways, that's where um, one can feel disappointed. 
So again, I don't need anybody to feel sorry for me. I'm doing fine. But I do feel, in a sense, a deeper sense of betrayal on the left than I did on the right. But that's a, now I'm just talking about a kind of an emotional reaction, mm -hmm. right? It doesn't really matter how I react emotionally. The question is, and this goes back to your first point, is do we have intellectual standards or not? In other words, yeah. do evidence and logic matter? And if they do, can we make a commitment, no matter what our, our deeply felt ideological or personal um, commitments on things, can we agree to uphold those standards? And can we agree not to use coercive measures when people don't agree with us? Uh, you know, to me, I, you know, sometimes I, I like to joke about my upbringing. I'm from North Dakota. Uh, to me, that all seems pretty straightforward. But then I always say, but I'm just a simple boy from the prairie. What do I know? Uh, <laughs> but, you know, in a way, uh, I think my own political and intellectual life and that started in journalism uh, before I was a professor. I was a mainstream newspaper journalist trying to figure out how the world worked. Uh, my entire adult life, I've been trying to to get better at how clearly I can see the world and see through and past and around my own biases, which I have just like everybody else. Um, not because we want to transcend, you know, the kind of people we are, but because we want to do what we can to use logic and evidence to to negate the worst of our, our prejudices. Can I do that personally? And then can I help do that collectively? Uh, yeah. I always quote a, a, a real hero of mine, a, a man named Scott Nearing, who was a, a very famous uh, socialist back in the early 20th century, became an early homesteader. It's a long story, but Scott Nearing was a very inspirational figure to me. He was bounced out of university teaching for being anti-war back in the World War I era. <laughs> so this goes back. <laughs> But someone, uh, you know, asked him once, what's, what's your goal in life? And he said, my goal is to, to learn the truth, to teach the truth, and to build the truth into the life of the community. And that yeah. has inspired me ever since that, you know, we're all trying to learn best we can the truth about the world. Yeah. We're all trying to share that. But we're also trying to build it into the community because it's not an individual enterprise. If I was so smart, I could figure out everything on my own. Oh, that'd be great. You know, I wouldn't need anybody else. But I need people. I'm not as bright as, you know, most. I, I really need help. <laughs> but you can't get that help if that dogmatic tendency in human beings, and you have it, I have it, we all have it. Sure. We're not going to get closer to the truth if we don't collectively curb that tendency toward dogmatism. And I think... You know, that's a real struggle today, right, left, and center. It doesn't mean I think the right and left are equally guilty. As I said, I'm on the political left. I think the left is intellectually much more rigorous than the right these days. You mentioned uh, Christopher Ruffalo. Is it my pronunciation? R-U-F-O. Yeah. 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 You, you called him a scholar, and I kind of gritted my teeth there because uh he's a bright guy but i don't think the work he does counts as scholarship it's it's ideologically motivated and you know i've read about him and his own comments indicate he's not he's not out to find the truth he's out to find a version of the truth that he can weaponize to advance a conservative political position right now i've seen yeah. people on, on the left do that too but i think it's a much more pronounced problem on the right today uh and I, and I say that not to excuse failures on the left, but to at least, you know, 
try to accurately account for the political world we live in. Uh, and, you know, if, if one tries to do that, you're going to make enemies all around. Uh, but one still, you know, in my case, keeps to a left political commitment. I, I've been pissed off at some of my left comrades, <laughs> but it doesn't mean I abandoned my left principles. Right. I, I think that that, and that's a whole other discussion we could have. There's a, a recent book called The Myth of the Left and Right, how the American political spectrum is yeah. causing harm to Americans. Yeah. Hiram Lewis is the author. I'm talking with him next week. But the the area there for me, and I think where my concern is and why I was so uh, taken to have you join me, is after reading all of your not all of your, but a lot of your articles and some of your books is that we agree. I mean, I think we're, we're probably aligned on most yeah. things. And what concerns me specifically as a media guy who spent, you know, 20 plus years in the media world is that the progressive left ideologies around mm -hmm. what is shared most and what is glommed onto and what is fought mm -hmm. is pushing a lot of moderates and independents into the other camp. Mm. And that, is the drag queen story hour personified? Because okay. if you look at the literature, which I have now, um, and interviewed, it's not my, my buddies that I interviewed have never done it with children, right? They're just, okay. they, they perform in clubs and they sure. have a great time with it. But if you look at what has taken place, not only Christopher Rufo, but a lot of people on the right have noticed that this isn't healthy for children yeah. under a certain age. And so that's where this political, yeah. peace becomes a cudgel that they can yeah. hit us with. And then on the critical race theory, if you're not an anti-racist, if you don't subscribe to Imran Kendi and Ta-Nehisi Coates in the sense that every white person is a racist, and I understand what they mean by that slogan in the sense of implicit bias and what's yeah, going sure. on with our cultures and our systems. But if you talk to my friends where I grew up, you know, which is rural mm -hmm. and less educated, and these are craftsmen, you know, a lot of my buddies are electricians and carpenters and, and they work in construction. Mm -hmm. And when they're called privileged and when they say that you're a racist because you're white and, yeah. you know, those are, <laughs> we're losing yep. that battle, sir. I mean, that's, uh, that's the thing that scares me the most is that yeah. we're actually pushing away a major component or a major faction of our body yeah. politic because of these ideologies that again, yeah. as I was trying and probably not a good job, is that yeah. there seems to yeah. be a lot of crossover with all of these topics. Sure. And I think that's a good example. And and I know we've been talking a long time, so maybe this is can be my last comment. I don't want okay. to I don't want <laughs> to went fast, people. you're right. Yeah. But um so uh take critical race theory. I believe that intellectually it's a very powerful and compelling analysis of American society. So do I. Right. That doesn't mean it's obvious how to put it into practice in terms of political organizing, right? Those are strategic decisions. And anyone who's been involved in organizing knows you do what works, right? Yeah. While you maintain your principles. So I, I mentioned I'm from North Dakota. I'm very familiar with the Midwest. I still do work with people who live in the Midwest. Let's take again this complexity of the world. Um, the, the industrial Midwest and the, the rural Midwest. Uh, large parts of it have been hollowed out economically in recent years. And like you, I, I know a lot of people who are uh, not professional, not intellectual. They're, they're working people, either in the skilled yeah. trades or in manual labor. Right? And their lives have declined precipitously in recent decades. No question. Okay? Why is that? Well, to me, that's a result of the structural forces in in capitalism 
you know, the way the global economy has developed, right? Mm -hmm. uh, are they being uh, hurt because there's an increased attention to racialized disparities? No. The, the farm people, the working people I know in the Midwest, their problems don't come from the fact that we're a little more attentive to racialized disparities in wealth and power these days. Okay? No. Their Damn. problems come because systems of power and that distribution of wealth don't care about them. Right. Yeah. All right. Now, that's true. Right. It's also true that when those white people are engaging with law enforcement, they don't face some of the problems that people of color, especially black and brown people do. Right. So they still do have a kind of privilege that comes from not having to deal with racialized violence, let's say. Both things are true. Right. The world is complex. The, the intellectual question is how to analyze this so we understand the forces that are hurting people across yeah. the board. The political question is how do we mobilize the people on the bottom to recognize that fighting with other people on the bottom is not productive for anybody. Now, I'm the first to say I don't, I'm not a great tactician, right? Strategy isn't my strong suit. <laughs> I don't know exactly how to do it. Right. But I do know that when you bring people together and you point out that the enemy is not the other guy who's struggling like you are. Right. The enemy is both individuals and, and institutions that don't care about you. Right. And, yeah. you know, we we have this term now that a couple of sociologists came up with deaths of despair. Right. The death rates uh, it, among lower income people. Right. Uh, opioid overdoses. We all know the story. Yeah. Those aren't just individual failures. Right. So if you have someone, uh, you know, in Detroit, an African American in Detroit and a white person in rural Kansas, and they're both underemployed, they're both dealing with cycles of poverty and they're both dealing with addiction. They have a lot in common. Right? Yeah. They're not in the same situation. They deal with different problems, but they're in the same kind of situation. How do we get to that point? Well, as you've been pointing out, the current political dialogue is not helping us get there. No. Uh, and so I, I always, you know, I jokingly say I'm, I'm male in a patriarchal culture. I'm white in a white supremacist culture. I'm American born in a world run by the United States largely. And I had access to, to good cheap education and, and, you know, managed to get into the professional middle class. I've got, you know, a lot of advantages. My my joke is if I'd been born good looking, I would have had it all. Uh, <laughs> so for me, right, the job is to be critically self-reflective across the board, right? Anything that comes up, I have to think, okay, how do I as a person with a lot of unearned advantages deal with this? But we all have to be critically self-reflective in some part of our life. And more important, movements have to be critically self-reflective. And I think a lot of what we're talking about is not just individual failures, but the failures of movements. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, I mentioned I'm doing some new writing. I'm working on a new book. And the working title of the book in my head borrows a line from John Stuart Mill, his classic book on liberty, which is a book I taught for many years in a class on freedom. And what Mill says is the reason we need free speech 
is part is for one reason, because the conventional wisdom can be wrong. You know, what people think is true might not be true after all. Mm -hmm. Lots of examples in history of that. But he said, even if an opinion is wrong, it's false. It's demonstrably wrong. He said, we should still let people speak it because otherwise the truth has nothing to rub up against. And he said what he wants is a living truth, a truth that is constantly proving itself. Because he said, if you don't have a living truth, you have dead dogma. And so that's the title of this book in my head, Dead Dogma. And Oh, that's good. You look like around that. and, you know, there's a lot of dead dogma by the side of the road these days. And I, you know, I don't claim to have an answer, but I do want to be part of a conversation that tries to help all of us um, leave dead dogma behind. Well, that is a good place to end it. Thank you so much, yeah. Bob. As you said, I was yeah. going your professor, but I don't want to insult you. I <laughs> again, I think I I really enjoyed reading. Thank you as much as I could about you, yeah. and uh, I really appreciate you coming on to talk about this because that is it wasn't the dry queen thing is obviously important, but yeah. I think what's most intriguing about your work and your writing and your history was kind of how you helped me understand how it all kind of plays together, yeah. and that's exactly what I wanted to get across to my listeners. So. Thank you very much for your time this morning. And then thank you. And let me know when your book is ready, because yeah, if you want right. an early reader on that, I would love to read it and give yeah. you my two cents. Well, thanks so much. And and thanks to Julie Bindle, who, who brought us together, yes. who said, he's, she said, whatever happens, it'll be a great conversation, I know. And and she was right. <laughs> so once again, Julie is right. She's always right. Isn't she right. great? Oh, I yeah. love her so much. Yeah. Well, thanks again. Well, thanks so much, Joey. All right. Take care. Cheers. Thanks for tuning in, everyone. If you dig what we're doing over here, please subscribe. And while you're at it, please download an episode or two and leave a review. I'd love to hear your thoughts. Until next time, big hugs.